Pastor John said, the first reading this morning is from Acts 25, and it can be found on page 1122 of the Bibles in the pews in front of you. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appeared to appeal to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spe spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not, not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. 
The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send, a prisoner, to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're going to stand and sing song number three, I Choose to Put My Trust in Christ. So our reading continues into Acts chapter 26, which is on page uh, 1123. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and, as the first first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Fester, Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernese, and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned last week, uh, many of us are reluctant faith sharers for a variety of reasons. It could be a lack of confidence because we don't recognise that the Lord Jesus has given us as Christians a mandate to faith share. We do have authority on which to kind of operate. And we looked at that last week. It may be that we're unclear as to what to say. Well, we'll get a bit of a clue to that today, but we'll concentrate more on it next week. Or it may be that... um, It's a question of desire, it's a question of motive, and we'll look at that the week after that. But this week, the method, or a method, of how somebody went about faith sharing. Now, I could have looked at a couple of very familiar examples. The encounter, for example, of Jesus with the Samaritan woman in John 4, or Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, but I guess you're pretty familiar with those two examples. I've chosen instead to um, tackle this narrative, which is a narrative always. You have to read far more to kind of get any points out of it, hence uh, Colin heroically battled through two chapters. And um, to look at how Paul, in these last uh, few chapters in the book of Acts, uh, how he climaxes here after he's had five trials, two of which are are mentioned uh, here. Because Paul appears both as a defendant in a court case and also as a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Increasingly today, we hear of Christians being disciplined at work, having to endure employment tribunals or even a civil court case um, to defend their public right to freedom of speech, rational debate, able to hold personal views and at the same time um, serve those whose personal morality may be, they may be in disagreement with but nonetheless treating them, not treating them any differently or any disadvantageously compared to anybody else. And Paul's appearance in court will be very illustrative for us. Now Paul also uses here any and every opportunity to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is instructive to see how he goes about it and what it is exactly he focuses on. I have a number of friends, male friends, who um, I um, endearingly call my kind of Christianized Del Trotters. And they know I do. You remember Del Boy and Rodney of Trotters Independent Traders? I know you do. Um, with uh, their little yellow three-wheeled Robin Reliant. Well, Del Boy could sell anything to anybody, couldn't he? And a Christianized Del Boy is a good evangelist because they're chatty. But I dare say there's a female equivalent who's been changed from gossiping about trivia to gossiping the gospel because it's gossiping the gospel that enabled in the first two or three centuries for the Christian faith to spread so rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. They just talked about it to people that they knew. And so what those women did was turn a natural disposition into an effective faith-sharing method. So Paul, we'll see, turned his talent, and he was undoubtedly very talented, to the cause of the gospel. So let's familiarise ourselves with Paul's situation. The time is about 59-60 AD. The place is largely focused around Caesarea Maritima, which is the provincial uh, Roman capital of the province. It's on the shores of the Mediterranean. It's just above Tel Aviv. The context... Paul, by this time, had been a follower of the way, or a Christian, for 25 years. He probably became a believer a few years after Jesus' resurrection um, on Easter Sunday. He engaged in three so-called missionary journeys, establishing Christian communities in what is today Turkey, and in Greece, and in Cyprus. And we might say that he'd spent that period on the offensive. But now he found himself on the defensive. And Luke, who, um, who was with him all this time, describes these five trials that he had to endure, having been assaulted, arrested, bound, and brought to trial. The first trial was before a Jewish crowd in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount area, chapter 22. Then he is hauled before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Jewish Council in Jerusalem, chapter 23. The third and the fourth trials are before the Roman governors in Caesarea, 
first of all Felix and then his successor Festus in chapters 24 and 25 and then the fifth trial is again at Caesarea before King Herod Agrippa II who's the great-grandson of Herod the Great who was the king at the time of Jesus's birth and along with the rest of that sort of family in succession were the Roman puppet rulers of part of their province. Now throughout these chapters 21 to 26 we see the response of two communities. There is the Jewish community who are increasingly hostile whereas the Romans are consistently friendly. And these two themes of Jewish opposition and Roman justice are interwoven in Luke's narrative with the Apostle Paul caught between them, the victim of one and the beneficiary of the other. Now in chapter 21, the Jews attempt to lynch him. In 22, they continue their hysterical demands for his death when there's a new governor. And in 23, they conclude uh, with a secret plot. 40 men under oath plot to ambush and kill him. The treatment and the trials of Paul have very obvious parallels with what happened to the Lord Jesus, the way he was treated. Now the Romans here are consistently presented as friends of the gospel. If you think back in Acts, the first Gentile convert was a Roman centurion, Cornelius. The first convert on Paul's first missionary journey was the Roman proconsul of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus. Now in Jerusalem and Caesarea, Claudius Lysias, who is the military tribune, a commander of a thousand men, he took Paul under his protection. He twice rescued him from being lynched by the mob by taking him into custody. He prevented um, any torture as soon as he was aware Paul was a Roman citizen. He protected him from the murder plot by transferring Paul to Caesarea so that he was under the procurator's jurisdiction. And when it came to the trials, although Paul was accused by the Jews, he was tried and exonerated by the Romans. Now Luke isn't saying that Roman justice is perfect. He does, of course, allude to the fact that Felix was open to a bribe. But he does assert that Paul had not offended it. Not only does Paul declare his innocence, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against Caesar, 25 verse 8. But his judges, the Romans, agreed with him. Claudius Lysias, in his letter to Felix, there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment, 23, 29. Procurator Festus to King Agrippa, I found he had done nothing to deserve death, 25, 25. And King Agrippa, at the end of the fifth trial, summed up in these words, this man has done nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. This man could have been freed if he'd not appealed to Caesar. Now, Rome and Jerusalem, in Paul's world, were the superpowers. The Romans are the political and military superpower with this massive empire, 
And for Paul, as a Jew, Jerusalem is the religious centre of gravity. And Paul's opponents had tried to frame him as an enemy of both, offended against the law of the Jews, against the temple, and against Caesar, 25, 7 and 8. This was not how Paul saw it. Paul sees Christianity not as a clash with Judaism, but in continuity with it. He sees that all these Old Testament predictions of the Messiah have been or begun to be fulfilled in Jesus and the Jews should naturally embrace it because their Messiah, long predicted, has turned up. And Christians, Paul had written in Romans 13, recognise the God-given authority of Rome to rule. The gospel didn't undermine the law, it upheld it, he says. So let's take a look at Paul, first as a defendant and then as a witness. As a defendant, he has two allegations against him, that he had spoken and acted against Moses and that he had spoken and acted against Caesar. He denies both charges as he appears in succession before Felix, Festus, and then Agrippa. In chapter 24, it's before Felix, who'd been governor since, uh, procurator since 52 AD. He got the job because his brother was the Emperor Claudius's favourite minister. The Roman historian Tacitus describes Felix as he held the power of a tyrant with the disposition of a slave. That's not meant to be in any way complimentary. He was rather a brute. He was heavy-handed, and that eventually got him into trouble. And the, the, the successor to Claudius, Emperor Nero, hauled him back to Rome. I don't know what the outcome was. Before Felix, Paul rejects the charge of sectarianism. He's not forming some kind of breakaway sect of Judaism. He emphasises the continuity of his gospel with the Old Testament scriptures. He says he served the God of his fathers with a good conscience. In 24.14 he says he believes everything that agrees with the law and that's written in the prophets. He claims he taught no more than they taught. He cherished the same hope that they cherished, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. He's arguing that he's not some kind of apostate deviating from Judaism, but is in continuity with the Jewish tradition, which has a hopeful future, predicted by Moses and the prophets, and which has simply begun to be fulfilled by Jesus, who Moses and the prophets wrote all about well in advance. He and other Jews, a growing number of them, recognised it. His Jewish opponents had simply not. Then before Festus in 25, Paul rejects the charge of sedition, or which is a political offence, he points out that he was not responsible for the public disorder or breach of the peace the Jewish mob were. He'd done nothing against Caesar, 
He's happy to claim his right as a Roman citizen to be tried by Caesar, and so he appeals to Rome. He's expressing his loyalty, not anarchy, towards Rome. And then towards King Agrippa II, no fresh charges are brought. The questioning seems to be about why the Jews wanted to be rid of him. It had to do with carrying out the ministry that he'd been given on the Damascus Road to bring this message to not only the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So his three defences were successful. Neither Felix, nor Festus, nor Agrippa had found him guilty. Each indicated that he was innocent of the charges. He'd been able to declare it and express his threefold loyalty to Moses and the prophets, to Caesar, and most of all, to his Lord Jesus Christ. He was, in other words, a faithful Jew, a faithful Roman, and a faithful Christian. And let's look at how we might apply what we've seen there to situations where Christians find themselves in difficulties today due to their moral and religious views. Well, first of all, it is right to use the law to defend one's position, as Paul did. It is easy for people to make accusations, and some accusations the authorities have every right to investigate. But often, no law is found to have been infringed. What we have is opponents trying it on. They are acting with intimidation. They are trying to silence those who take a contrary view to theirs. And it's greatly helped if laws are phrased in subjective terms rather than objective terms. They are trying to find fault where there is none. And secondly, I'd like us to notice the irrationality of his opponents. There is an awful lot of shouting in these two chapters. 21, 18, the Asian Jews saw Paul at the temple. They made a false accusation that he taught against Judaism. They then made a false assumption. They had earlier seen a Gentile convert to Christianity, Trophimus, with Paul in the city of Jerusalem. That was okay. But they assumed that Paul had taken him to the Temple Mount. That would not have been okay because the guy's a Gentile. So with those two false accusations and assumptions, surprise, surprise, they manage to arouse a mob into a rather frenzied state. So much so that the military tribune Claudius Lysias takes charge and he too is greeted by a variety of different voices shouting different things in answers to his questioning, 2134. And then we read, since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he takes Paul off to the barracks to protect him. And the crowd, even then, whilst he was being taken, kept shouting, away with him. We see another outburst in 22.22. 22. 
when they don't like what Paul is saying. They raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Later, before the Sanhedrin, the issue of the resurrection came up. That was kind of um, the heart of the matter. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection from the dead, albeit future. The Sadducees didn't. They started fighting each other. The Sadducees, having lost really, then decided to plot to kill Paul. And it's not just the Jewish mob or the Jewish leaders who are irrational. Festus, who thought it was very unreasonable that he should send a prisoner to Caesar without specifying charges himself, had an outburst in 26-24 as he interrupted Paul. He said, you're out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. Well, how does Paul respond? Well, 26, 25, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. He keeps his cool. What I am saying is true and reasonable. And it's all public domain stuff, he says, because it's not done in a corner. There's a lot we can learn from this as we defend Christianity today. Christian thinking and Christian morality in the public domain. And we have some very unlikely allies. Julie Bindle is a journalist, writes for The Guardian, describes herself as a staunch feminist and says she chose to be a lesbian. But she's joined what she calls a handful of radicals in the world today who have dared to challenge the diagnosis of transsexualism. That's what's called gender dysphoria where you have the body of one sex, but you think you have the gender of another trapped in it. She challenges that, the validity of that diagnosis, which is called by transsexuals transphobic. And she has been treated, she reports, with staggering vitriol. After I had been shortlisted for the Stonewall Award, scores of blogs and message boards filled with a call to arms against me. On one, Genocide and Julie Bindle, a poster wrote, she is an active oppressor of trans people. I hope she dies an agonizing and premature death of cancer in the very near future. It would make the world a better place. She goes on. I had some support from some of those who had also experienced a transsexual-led witch hunt. I heard from post-operative transsexuals who'd been railroaded into surgery and now regretted it. I don't know if you realise there are only 150 operations a year in the United Kingdom for gender reassignment. You'd not think that from the amount of airtime it all gets. But they say, do not publish my name, said one, but if anyone questions the validity of, say, of sex change treatment, you're sent to Coventry by the community elders. She'd heard from a police officer who during the course of his duty was unfairly accused by transsexuals of transphobia and was driven to a breakdown by their vicious campaign. An eminent medical ethicist who had dared to defend a fellow professional who had questioned the diagnosis of gender dysphoria from a scientific point of view almost lost his career and reputation. 
and several women from feminist organisations, Jermaine Greer is a recent example, have been bullied and vilified for challenging the right of male to female transsexuals to work in women-only organisations. Now, we should welcome that for at least two reasons. It might, first of all, stop the vilification of Christians by some of the LGBT community, which has been equally vitriolic. And secondly, it might help foster rational, evidence-based debate on the issue of sexuality. If we work in the world of the NHS or education, we can't argue explicitly from the scriptures since those with whom we are debating don't acknowledge their authority. But if their author is also our creator, then it will be found through research that the way he made us will not only enjoy the best outcomes, but if we follow his ways, but will turn out to be supported by scientific, sociological and psychological studies. One is reminded of the phrase, argument weak, shout louder. But rationality and research should be the tools for Christians to use. Time will tell, and God's ways will be proved to be the right ways. And lastly, Paul as a witness. Two years in prison at Caesarea Maritima must have been incredibly frustrating for this activist, but he used his time to write to Christians and to Christian churches he founded. But when the opportunity to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ presented itself, he seized them with confidence and with courage. There was this private interview with Felix and a much more public one with Herod Agrippa II. With Felix, who, as we've hinted at, was one of the worst Roman officials mentioned in the New Testament, cool, corrupt, with no moral scruple. And yet Paul was not afraid of this guy, and he spoke, 24-24, about faith in Christ Jesus, and in speaking about righteousness and self-control, neither of which would have rated high on Felix's kind of um, uh, list of qualities, and of the judgment to come. That's brave stuff in front of this procurator. What was the outcome? Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. And we also read at the same time he was hoping for a bribe. So there you see, by being brave and by including in, would you like, the full gospel of righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, the Apostle Paul has enabled the Holy Spirit to take those words and convict Felix. But he immediately retreats because he's compromised by his corrupt nature. Then there's the trial before Agrippa. Notice Paul is not overawed by the pomp and power of the occasion, nor by all the big wigs who were attending. He makes no attempt to ingratiate himself with authorities. He wants Agrippa's salvation, not his favour. He shares the story of his own conversion, which is descriptive. People love to hear your personal stories. And then he follows it 
with his own concern for Agrippa's conversion by gently being prescriptive, applying what he says to the person he's with. And three times he manages to sum up in different ways the key elements of the Christian gospel in the king's hearing. Firstly, in 26.18, he summarizes it through Christ's commission to him, which was to enlighten them by opening their eyes, by turning them from darkness to light. Now, people then and now are simply in the dark about what life is all about. They are ignorant, which literally means no knowledge, agnosis. And then the next step, from the power of Satan to God. The devil loves to keep human beings in the dark. He has a whole variety of tactics. A good read of Screwtape's letters would give you an insight. He loves people to think he doesn't exist. If you don't think you've got an enemy, you're hardly going to be on the defensive and on the lookout for them. He loves Christians to be seen not to live up to their profession because their hypocrisy will put people off. In a sense, the devil keeps people in the dark by distractions. Moving into the light results in forgiveness of sins and a place in God's new community. He says a place among those who are sanctified, in other words, made holy by faith in Jesus. A second summary is in verse 20, and he describes his obedience to his heavenly vision in terms of sharing with people that they should repent, turn to God, and prove their repentance by their deeds. Note, prove it, not earn it by their deeds. It is, if you like, evidence-based profession of faith, not just relying on people's words, but seeing how they are changed. And the third summary is in 23. He details his continuing mission to that very day, which was to testify that as the scriptures had predicted, Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ will be proclaimed both to Jew and Gentile throughout this new age. Now Festus might think him mad, but Paul stresses that all that he's been saying is true and reasonable, verse 25. And after this descriptive discourse, he is prescriptive to Agrippa, 26, as he's confident that Agrippa, who'd been a child when Jesus was uh, in the public realm, and who was an adult when Paul and Peter and others were active, that he is familiar with these things, that he's aware of them since they were not done in a corner. He's confident that Agrippa is not unaware. He knows Agrippa is familiar with the Old Testament. And Agrippa is savvy enough to know that Paul is challenging him to become a Christian, 26, 28. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul agrees. That is what he hopes. 
Well, Jesus had told Ananias, who presumably had passed on the information to Luke, that Paul was, quote, chosen, a chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, Acts 9.15. These predictions had come true and Paul had not failed. Jesus made a similar a warning to his disciples in Luke 21:12 that they would be brought before kings and governors on account of his name and had promised that on such occasions he would give them words and wisdom. And he will do the same for us in front of our more ordinary acquaintances and audiences. We will be enabled to draw upon our Christian knowledge and be inspired to say what is most apt for the occasion. So let's take him at his word and be ourselves and simply get talking. <laughs>